Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast, where we have in-depth conversations with experts to help navigate wellness and empower all of us to make feasible changes to a healthier life and healthier world. Welcome back to the Future is Healthy podcast. Today's guest is Dr. J.C. Lowen, PhD. She's a clinical neuroscientist who received her doctorate of neuroscience at the University of Utah. Her background includes the study of basic and clinical brain injury, including the publication of research regarding mechanisms of epilepsy pathophysiology. Dr. Lowen is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute scholar with a master's in clinical investigation awarded in 2018, as well as a recipient of a higher education teaching specialist certificate. Through these degrees, she obtained experience with patient care and education, as well as an understanding of the necessity of respecting patient experience and symptoms. She is currently working at Cognitive FX, a clinic that specializes in addressing concussion symptoms. Dr. Lowen focuses in patient care and education, which is why she's a perfect guest for the Futures Healthy podcast, where we make health information accessible. Today, we talk about why we sleep, why do we dream, how could sleep prevent dementia and boost our memory, and we talk about what the glymphatic system is and how your brain washes out toxins. We cover tips on how to get better sleep, whether we should be sleeping in a cool or warm environment, why you need to go to bed at the same time every day, uh, foods that can help with sleep. We also cover how we all may be dehydrated and how that affects our concentration, how diet affects our brain, how the sun can affect our mood, how exercise boosts brain health and memory, and how we can actually change the structure of our brain with breathing and meditation. And definitely stay tuned towards the end because we talk about how we can make these tips applicable to our everyday life. And lastly, we talk about how COVID can affect the brain. This conversation is full of great information and tips, and we hope that you enjoy it as much as we did. Now on to our conversation. Hi, Dr. JC Lowen. Welcome to the Future is Healthy podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's lovely to be here. So we want to get started with um, just what got you interested in neurology? What's your background and um, what are you specializing in now? So I originally was going to go to med school. Um, Just neurophysiology in general was really interesting. Um, But it ended up I, I was actually in my undergraduate education and I noticed that I just kept trending towards the research side. You know, it, it kept going towards, you know, neuroscience. I kept taking all these neuroscience classes, ended up skipping out on some of my chemistry classes so I could take other neuroscience classes. So it just be, it got to the point where I was going, I've got to pursue this more. Otherwise, I'm going to be curious about it for the rest of my life. So I actually went into, um, I spent some time in a laboratory, a neuroscience laboratory, looking at aging neuroscience, basically what happens to cells in the brain <clears throat> as we age. And then after that, I decided I did want to pursue a neuroscience PhD. So I applied at the University of Utah and was accepted and was lucky enough to actually um, get into an amazing epilepsy lab. The reason that I chose epilepsy, I was actually interested, first of all, in neurodevelopmental disorders. But I liked the epilepsy lab for a couple reasons. Um, I became very fascinated with the concept of, you know, neurological disease not just being a neural disorder or a disorder of neurons, but also a disorder of the support cells, basically, of the glia in the brain. And the epilepsy lab that I happened to get into was very interested in those glia. So 
When it comes to how did I get into brain injury and concussion, there we get to the neurovascular coupling component. Um, you know, I had that experience with astrocytes. I had a drive at that point to kind of at that point stop clinic, you know, stop that basic neuroscience research. I wanted to start helping human beings because it's very interesting to work with mice, to get real live imaging data of how neurons and cells are working real time in the brain, you know, on a microscopic level. But there was no, I couldn't see how my research was going to impact patients with brain injury. So I was lucky enough that I saw that Cognitive FX had an opening and I applied and I met the amazing Dr. Fong and Dr. Allen. And I remember coming home that night and talking to my husband and going, I found my dream job. <laughs> and luckily I, I am here in the position of clinical, you know, a clinical neuroscientist. I love what I do. I get to do a little bit of clinical research. I also get to interact with patients and I can see how neuroscience is now applied in a clinical sense. That's awesome. Um, so what kind of interactions do you have with the patients? What's your role there? All across the board. So I, um, I often am the, one of the first people to interact with the patient. So they'll submit paperwork um, to the clinic and we'll do Zoom meetings and they'll pop up on the screen. I say, hi, I'm JC. I'm the clinical neuroscientist here. I'm here to ask you some questions. Um, so my role in those consultations is to gather information on whether the patient would be a good fit for cognitive FX. But I'm also there to answer their questions. Many patients at that point, you know, may not even know why they have some of these symptoms, may not be able to put a name to some of the, you know, the issues they're having. So it's, it's really a connecting moment between me and the patient. Then when they eventually come into the clinic, I'm often the one or my, myself or a registered nurse, we're going over the reports with the patients. You know, what does that functional MRI show? What does it mean for those patients? What does it mean for their symptoms and uh, their recovery? We're also working behind the scenes. You know, many times we are communicating with the therapists on hand to see how we can better treat patients, provide ideas, explain why patients may be having, let's say, very unique symptoms, possibly due to a structural anomaly, you know, walking through why is this happening so the patient can have an answer for that. And then the best part of my job is the end of the week on Friday. So once patients are done with their treatment, because I get to compare and contrast where they started off, where they finished, we talk about how their symptoms have improved, how their just ability to function has improved. And then um, I'm also quite a bit now doing follow-up videos with patients to a couple months down the line, seeing how they're doing, what they need, you know, um, and it's really nice at that point because you've seen them throughout the entire process and they're like family. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so we actually saw a lot of your blog posts on the Cognitive FX website as well. Uh, so we wanted to get into some of the general topics of brain health. Um, one specifically that caught our eye was about sleep. So what's the importance of sleep in both the average person's brain health and someone from recovering from an MTBI? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to try to be as succinct as possible because sleep research is fascinating. I um, agree. It's integral <laughs> to survival, to life for human beings. So let me start out with kind of the summary of why do we sleep? Why do we turn off for, you know, eight hours every night? There's a couple of basic components. First of all, whenever we are in a wake state, we are constantly breaking down something called ATP. 
basically it's an energy source for the brain. But once you break it down, kind of like I like to think of it like a glow stick, you know, you crack it open, it lights up, but over time it's gonna dim. What's the byproduct? You know, what needs to go in the trash can later? Well, that's actually something called adenosine. Now, adenosine needs to be cleared from the brain alongside other byproducts from the when the brain was active. You know, the exhaust fumes, essentially, of being awake. Those can include tau, amyloid beta, lactate, and other things. So sleep is very important for getting rid of that junk, essentially. Um, there's some great research, actually, first that came out, um, you know, some of the seminal research was done by Megan Nettergaard in her lab that talked about the glymphatic system, the system that actually causes that to happen. What's fascinating is that if you image a brain, if you compare an a, a, an a sleep brain and an awake brain, you can actually see that there is changes in the fluid that passes through the brain, the cerebral spinal fluid, and how it actually washes out the brain at night. So allowing these things to be cleared and so that the next morning you can wake up refreshed and ready to break down more ATP and do more things. Another important part of sleep is memory, is taking what we've experienced during the day and consolidating it or integrating it into what we've already got stored there. So many patients, um, well, I'll go into patients a little bit later, but many individuals, we are, they'll ask, well, why do I dream? And why do I dream about some things I've done during the day? Well, that is that consolidation process. Your brain's trying to link up a past thing, you know, w with something you've learned during that day. Very, very important. Um, so let's talk about what does sleep do, you know, what happens, what does brain injury do to sleep? Very basically, it makes it very difficult to sleep for a number of reasons. First of all, many of our patients have abnormal neurovascular coupling, which can basically be defined as you know blood flow to an area of the brain, which is providing oxygen. Then the neurons utilize that oxygen in order to complete their job. But we see issues with neurovascular coupling in an area called the thalamus, which is very basically a filter. So, for example, when I'm going to sleep, I need my brain filtering out most noise and light. Otherwise, I'm going to be waking up at the drop of the hat. If you've got impaired neurovascular coupling as a result of a concussion in that thalamic region, everything's going to wake you up. You know, you're going to be constantly bombarded with information that's going to keep you aware and awake. Another aspect, we have to think of the entire brain. Like, the brain may be one organ, but it has multiple different areas that have different functions. If you have impaired neurovascular coupling in some of these areas, neurovascular coupling, blood flow, cerebral spinal fluid, you may not be completely restoring these areas when you sleep. So really when it comes to brain injury, many of our patients have sleep issues that they find can't even be resolved sometimes by perfect sleep hygiene or medications even, and it comes down to the physiology of brain injury itself. So when you have impaired neurovascular coupling, that part of your brain is pretty much offline then? Yeah, it's not getting the nutrients it needs. The waste removal system isn't up to date. Um, there, it, it really has a big effect. You know, I like to phrase it when I'm talking to patients that, you know, impaired neurovascular coupling is like a stasis mode, but it's almost like if I shut a room in this clinic and never went in it for years, I'd come in and it'd be pretty musty in there. Is that the glymphatic system? Can you speak a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, so the glymphatic system is where we combine glia, you know, the support cells in the brain, and lymphatics. So really interesting. Um, our lymphatic system in our body is very disconnected from our brain. Our brain is the solitary organ. It's protected by a blood-brain barrier. It doesn't like to communicate with other things, or it likes to filter out a lot of things uh, through that blood-brain barrier, so it's not coming into contact with things circulating through the body. The glymphatic system is where during that, you know, during that clearance process, you actually have where the space between cells. So think about cellular communication, you know, or talking to someone in a room. Let's say you're talking in a room and there's tons of people around you. What are you going to do to hear the other person better? You're going to lean closer and they're going to talk in your ear so you can hear them. There, that's how neurons and glia and vascular commu vasculature communicate. During sleep, that space between those cells actually increases so that the cerebral spinal fluid can flush through. It's almost like the room has gotten a lot quieter. It's during COVID, you have to remain six feet apart, but you can still hear each other while that vacuum cleaner is going around the room. So that's that glymphatic system is, and there's still not a lot known about it. You know, we're still investigating how does this, you know, get triggered? You know, how do the cells start to know, let's move away from each other, you know, or let's decrease in size so there's more uh, space in between. So there's still the questions that remain, but it's a, you know, that glymphatic system was a huge finding in the realm of neuroscience. Yeah, and these processes are so important for everyone, no matter what age you are, what stage of life, <laughs> if you're um, recovering from a concussion or not. Um, what are some good uh, sleep hygiene tips that you have for people who are trying to get better sleep? So let's start off with some of the biggest things that all of us are guilty with is using our phone or other technology in the bedroom or soon before bed. Blue light will keep you awake. It, it will trigger the brain to say, oh, it's time to stay up now. So making sure that you don't, you know, don't use any kind of technology uh, before bed, you know, 30, 30 to 60 minutes beforehand. Read a book instead, you know, listen to music instead, uh, but don't have that input from blue light. Use a blue light filter is a lot of different options. Um, another tip would be sleep cold. You know, it's very important. Our, our metabolism actually changes while we're sleeping. Um, and it's good for us to be at in between some people like the mid 60s or thereabouts, depending on kind of your physiology. Some of us hold heat better than others, but definitely sleeping cooler. Um, I've tried to start sleeping cooler, but I think that it's a good idea to slowly decrease the temperature instead of having gone from 75 to 65 <laughs> in one night. <laughs> that doesn't help my sleep. <laughs> no. Well, that's another thing. That, so not to get off topic, but we do have an internal thermostat in our bodies that will take a couple weeks to adjust. You know, we think about, for example, now that it's getting into the beautiful season of fall, like I can walk outside and it could be in the 50s and I'm not concerned at all. But if I suddenly transitioned from 90 degree degree weather to 50 degree weather, my system will get quite a shock. So definitely incremental over time. That's a very good point. A um, couple other things would be go to bed at the same time and wake up at the same time every night. Um, 
that is so important. Your system needs to start priming itself before it goes to sleep. In addition, have a sleep regimen where 30 to 60 minutes before you go to bed, you do the same things. It could be having a cup of tea, sitting on the couch and watch the sunset, you know, having a specific type of music playing, any cues that will tell your brain, oh, we're unwinding right now. Um, some other things is that very simply keep your room clean and uncluttered. Um, make sure that, for example, you don't have a big meal right before uh, sleeping because that will, that will disrupt sleep as well. And there are some things, there are also actually some foods and other things that you can eat to help with sleep. Uh, there are actually foods that contain melatonin, which is responsible for, you know, part of the reason that why we can get to sleep and go through those different sleep cycles. So fruit and veg are a great way to get natural uh, melatonin in your in your diet. Um, also, carbohydrates. What are some of the examples of those foods? Um, so tart cherries, broccoli, corn, asparagus, which I love, um, a whole host of others. Um, it's also present in things like eggs and dairy products, but to a lesser degree. So if you're looking for a higher dose with a less volume, definitely go for those fruits and veg. What other roles does nutrition play in overall brain health? So what we eat is who we are, and especially with the brain. So the brain is an incredibly selfish organ, but it's also an incredibly delicate organ. It's made mostly of fat, um, but it consumes a ton of oxygen, a ton of glucose or ketone bodies if those are available. So it's always important to make sure that if you want to have a healthy brain and have a healthy way to use your brain, you know, being able to concentrate, focus, you know, think clearly, etc., nutrition is a big part. Before I talk about foods, I'd actually like to talk about water, especially right now during COVID. Simply because many of us have to wear masks, we are becoming dehydrated. You know, it's a lot less. Yep. Yep. Got to remind yourself to drink and being dehydrated will cause issues because your brain needs that liquid to do things like sleep and flush out all that stuff. Now, when it comes to general nutrition for the brain, you got to go with the basics, which is fruit and veg, you know, complex carbohydrates, you know, rich, you know, nutrients, things like nuts and seeds, etc., whole grains, making sure you're minimizing, you know, um, overproduced foods or things with a lot of sugar, not because sugar is so much bad at a, you know, on a normal level, but because it's going to provide this hit to the brain, this hit of energy that the brain's going to consume suddenly, and it's not going to have many reserves. Actually, for that, some people have recommended that our more um, modern diet, which contains a lot of glucose and refined sugars, may not be the best for brain function because of that, that kind of speed of consumption. It's too easy to eat. Things that are actually better for brain metabolism are things like ketone bodies, which are broken down from fats. You may recognize the word ketone body because of ketoacidosis or the ketogenic diet. Um, there are some researchers and nutritionists that actually believe that we should be getting more of our brain's energy from these ketone bodies, and it'll lead to better cognitive outcomes and neurological outcomes in the future because of that source of energy. There is a lot of discussion, though. Overall, it's eat healthy. Your brain will take what it needs and when it needs, but make sure you're getting the right amounts of everything, um, you know, in a full complex diet. And to not be afraid of fats, like fatty fish and the good nuts. Yes, do not be afraid of fats. Absolutely. 
One thing I should mention that that is actually very important, especially right now, is because we don't get a lot of time in the sun, or many of us, like myself, lots of Irish blood in my, you know, in my veins, we wear sunscreen, we're not going to get enough vitamin D. Definitely selecting foods with vitamin D because you're probably low on it, and it's important for not just brain health, but for autonomic nervous system health. You'll notice you're low in vitamin D, and many patients can even notice mood changes that they aren't, aren't identified and they go, until they go in for testing. Which foods are highest in vitamin D? I'm going to be super honest. I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Cool. We'll look that up. But that's what the lovely, is Google, the lovely Google is for. <laughs> Yes, yes, is right there, in our pocket. Is there a benefit to taking MCT oils? So um, medium-chain triglycerides are amazing. Our body really efficiently breaks them down into ketone bodies. So I've actually seen them in the store. There's like these little MCT shots or the MCT diet. So they are. We've tried them before. <laughs> I had, okay, I have to tell a little bit of a story. I went into the store and I love ginger. I love ginger everything. But I saw this little bottle and said, ginger shot. And I'm like, that sounds super cool. We're just going to do it. So I get out of the store and I get into my car and I pop this open. I look down and it looks like butter in a bottle. <laughs> and I read the label and it says MCT ginger shot. So then I understood. But it's very widely available. I mean, you can get it. You can also buy things like coke, you know, coconut oils, etc. Um, but very, very bioavailable, very easy to break down. Um, many there is research showing that those MCTs can help regulate blood sugar. So overall, I think that they are a great resource. They're a great thing to get into your diet. Whether you choose to go on the MCT ketogenic diet for yourself, you know that's a little more complex because you will need to also reduce things like carbohydrates that you ingest. Um, but there absolutely is research showing that MCTs in themselves are good for you. Um, and moving on to exercise, um, could you discuss the role of BDNF um, and can you get a boost of BDNF from more than just high intensity running? Um, can you do that from anaerobic exercises or just going for a walk? And what are the best um, physical exercises for your brain health? So all exercise is good exercise. Um, there are some factors to making sure that exercise is the most beneficial. But let's start with the example of the high intensity intervals. Why we use them at Cognitive FX is because there's good research showing that not only does that exercise innately modulate brain activity, but you will also get this massive release of brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. It is the basis for you know, modulating neuroplasticity. It's also very connected to different neurological disorders. Individuals with depression and other things like that have lower BDNF. Another fascinating thing is that there's a lot of research showing that simply with the implementation of an exercise regime, you can change structures in your brain. For example, the hippocampus, which is involved in memory. Now, when it comes to the different types of exercise, again, everything's going to be beneficial. High intensity may increase BDNF more rapidly and provide you with a more significant post-exercise boost. But even something as simple as doing more relaxed exercise like walking or stretching will also do that to a certain degree. Now, the important thing to remember, and this is where we have to consider that neurovascular coupling component, is that whenever you're doing some kind of physical exercise, make sure you're breathing properly. Oxygen is a cofactor for any brain process to happen. 
We personally see a lot of our brain injury patients who have abnormal breathing dynamics. So when they get on that treadmill, they're just not getting that oxygen. So they're not going to get the true benefit. So whether you've had a brain injury or not, make sure you're breathing, uh, especially during mask season. Make sure you're taking large, you know, diaphragmatic breaths, four-dimensional breathing, because that will get you an extra benefit from it. So we've been talking a lot about these benefits and uh, little tips and tricks for everyone to do for their brain health. And I know that you specialize um, in patient education and you're very good at explaining things. (laughs) So that's obvious why you're an expert in that. (laughs) Except I talk way too fast. I tend to get excited and it's just like da-da-da motor mouth. (laughs) Yes, I understand completely. Um, But do you have any recommendations for how people can make these regular habits in their everyday life? So I think that there needs to be a couple uh, couple things. They need to be relatable to your situation. Never look at someone's diet plan and going, I'm going to have that diet plan. You have to ask yourself, how do I make this into my diet plan? Same thing with brain health. How do I make this into my brain plan? Integrate it into your pre-existing activities. I mean, even think of something as simple as brushing your teeth. It took us a long time as kids to get used to brushing our teeth. Now as adults, we go to bed and I'm like, oh, I already brushed my teeth. I didn't even think about it. Integrating, you know, whether it be things that you want to do. Let's say it is some kind of a dietary implementation. Let's say it is some kind of cognitive exercise or physical exercise. Tying it into something you're already doing will make it a lot easier and make it stick a lot better. Another thing is setting attainable goals. Never expect it to be perfect the first time around and expect to fail. So, you know, when you're when you're trying to implement something make sure that you've got a backup plan. Like if it, if I haven't implemented it, if I keep failing, I have to change the way I'm going to try doing it. You know, we human beings need to be very accepting that all of us and our personalities are different. And if something's difficult, we're going to try avoiding it because honestly, right now, a lot of us are very stressed. So implementing new things in our lives seems like a monumentous, you know, challenge. Another thing is repeat, repeat, repeat try to do it again and again and again maybe even something as simple as making yourself a schedule and going I'm going to do it for 15 days straight and be really good at it and then see how I can apply it later so just make sure it's something you can do multiple times even if it's not at the same time of day or during the same activity so those would be the the three big things for for implementing and I'm going to admit uh, do what I say not what I do it's difficult for all of us (laughs) You know, since COVID, for example, I haven't been to the gym much and I've been thinking, how do I find a new way to exercise? Tried the YouTube yoga videos, got very bored of those very quickly. You know, tried walking on the on the street and just you're going to fail a lot. But the time that you get it right, it'll be worth it. And I really like that you're saying um, that you have to take all of these tips and really personalize it. Um, I had a friend who sent in their... um, microbiome data and then they got in return 10 foods to avoid and he hadn't heard of six of the 10 foods so that's not very useful for them (laughs) Um, but we're also you have so many like great tips and information for listeners for their general health and they can just choose like one or two that can work for them like you were saying some sometimes it doesn't work with our busy lifestyle but um, those were really great uh, tips and advice thank you Well, and another aspect is pick the easiest one first. 
you know, pick something you're going, I can totally do that. And once you have that feeling of success, you know, that dopamine hit that essentially comes from I did the thing, you'll be more likely to be able to do the harder ones later. That's great advice. You you recommended too just deep breathing and breathing exercises. Do you recommend any meditation and where is the research at um, in regards to brain health? Meditation and mindfulness is a wonderful activity all of us should be doing. Um, so within the within kind of let's say functional MRI research, which I'm a little bit biased, you know, working here at Cognitive FX, but just by implementing and practicing things like mindfulness, you can actually change the connectivity in your own brain. This is the amazing thing about the human cerebral cortex is that our conscious control can actually change how our brain automatically works incredibly helpful for those dealing with stress right now for those that may have a pre-existing neurological condition and might want to find a non-pharmacological way to combat some of the difficulties that come with it and it doesn't just have mental effects it can also have physical effects mindfulness also modulates areas of the brain that coordinate with our sympathetic and parasympathetic sides of our autonomic nervous system that's our fight or flight and rest and digest so it can actually help your physical state alongside your mental state start meditating more same yeah yeah i've used headspace the app uh, a few times and i kind of like doing that um but yeah so we saw another one of your blog posts and you had mentioned how viruses and specifically covid19 can affect your brain can we talk about that yes so uh, I was really excited to do that blog. So actually, let's flip back to where we were first start talking about my experience in the laboratory. I was actually investigating viral, basically viral-induced epilepsy. So when it came down to COVID, suddenly I was going, wow, all of that research with viruses is suddenly paying off. So let's, let's talk about what do viruses in general, what can they do to the brain? And COVID's a great example because it is displayed that all of the mechanisms by which a virus can affect the brain, COVID can do most of them. So there are usually two main pathways, indirect and direct. Direct meaning direct infection of neurons. COVID displays signs of this because some individuals lose sense of smell and taste, signaling that COVID could actually directly infect uh, olfactory neurons. Other studies suggest that with the uh, respiratory, significant respiratory issues that come about five days later, the virus may also be able to work its way into the brainstem and affect autonomic areas. So those that control our, our breathing, essentially the non-conscious non breathing. It can also cause massive cytokine storms, so production of inflammatory mediators that cause the body to go into this hyper, you know, hyper-inflammatory state. Um, it can cause issues with oxygen absorption, causing anoxia or hypoxia, which can then, again, if the brain doesn't have oxygen, that's going to be another brain injury. It can cause clots, essentially, which will dis um, you know, disrupt blood flow to the brain. It can also have other effects, um, and I'm trying to, I have to pause for one moment. There's one, one part I forgot to mention, and now I'm forgetting it. <laughs> I think that was the main summary of the ones that I can think of. Um, That's a lot. But yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem when you have this long list and you're like, did I get all eight or am I at seven? Missing. <laughs> kind of like when you're at the grocery store, you're like, what was the last thing? Uh, but definitely, I think that puts into perspective how, how dangerous that, that little tiny virus is. Mm -hmm. 
And the next question might be, what could we do to stop it? And the biggest thing is don't get infected. Um, there really is a good research right now to show how can we protect ourselves once the virus is on board. There's so many factors, age, you know, immune system, etc., that we're still finding out about. I think we're lucky that a lot of in a lot of places around the world are jumping onto the research side. I have never before seen articles come out so fast about a singular you know virus it was really impressive and i think that there's just going to be more coming but in the meantime we're just going to have to be as safe as possible there hasn't been much talk in the news about covid and its effect on the brain is it just too early to tell the manifestations of covid on the brain so I would encourage everyone to look up the word long haulers. So there are individuals who have um, been infected with the COVID virus, been cleared, essentially defeated it. You know, they, they won the battle. They're considered clear by their doctors, but they have persistent memory issues, concentration and focus issues, brain fog months later. Now, a little bit of a spoiler is that we've actually done functional MRI on one of these long haulers and saw what we would see in somebody with a traumatic brain injury. He had changes in neurovascular coupling that fit the profile of many of our other patients. Now, obviously, COVID's effects on the lungs and organs of the body, that's what I forgot. COVID can also affect things like kidneys, liver, etc. So it can also cause organ damage, which, for example, if you, if you have damage to the liver, you're going to have less purification of toxins in the blood, and those are going to go straight to the brain. Um, but it was, it was really shocking to see that we could see disruption of neurovascular coupling in this patient. Unfortunately, he is, he's struggling quite a bit. Um, he is having difficulties breathing still that may be from, you know, scarring on the lungs from the infection itself. But it gave us a view into the fact that these individuals with chronic cognitive sequelae from COVID, it's a functional brain change. It's not something they're making up. It's not something psychological. That's uh, that's a little bit scary, but pretty interesting. Um, but w the best that we can do is just follow guidelines and make our bodies more resilient, just like we want to make our brain resilient. Exercise, sleep, 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 <laughs> and diet. Um. Exactly. <laughs> all right. So we ask all of our guests on The Future is Healthy to finish the following sentence. The future is... Biomarker-based, individualized treatment for brain injury of any type. Expand on that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So something that we, and I'm a little bit biased, you know, being in the clinic, but something that we come across is when you try to fit this cookie-cutter treatment approach to thousands of patients, and we are all different genetically. We're all different, you know, socioeconomically. We're all different mentally. Uh, and we may have brain injuries from different sources. So making sure that any treatment considers a patient-specific biomarkers, what's going on with them, how did they change after a brain injury, and then making sure treatment reflects that. Um, and I think it's going to, so we use, you know, functional MRI, we used advanced neuroimaging for brain biomarkers, but it's going to go even past that, you know, microbiome testing for the microbiome, gut bacteria, blood testing, hormone testing, you know, this is all going to be, we're going to need to gather big data on these patients in order to treat them as they need to be treated. We're getting there piece by piece, um, but I'm looking forward to a future when, you know, a patient is listened to and seen on their own terms.
treated on their own terms. And we're coming out with more and more ways to make um, personalized data and treat off of that. So it's exciting. It is an exciting field. Well, thank you so much. This was a great conversation. Uh, we really appreciated all the information you have. And again, we see why you're an expert in patient education. You explain things so well. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that so very much. I, I love it because it's honestly, the patients are, you have to consider them like students. They may the, be the first time they're hearing this stuff. So if you have to teach them neuroscience in five minutes, you got to do it. <laughs>